passage this morning is Romans 1, 8 through 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among as well as among as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, each week we turn to God's word, trusting that uh, as saints gathered around it, we are those who need to be equipped by it. So we're thankful that God has mercifully given us his word. Now, I went to uh, business college when I was there, Spears School of Business at Oklahoma State, if you're familiar with that, where they tried to prepare me for a world of working in business, and I'm not sure how well they prepared me for that, probably not any fault of their own, probably my own, but one of the things they did try to prepare you for as well was, was to even go into interviews and interviews, uh, interview with different companies and people that would be interviewing you, and one of the things that they taught us really, really clearly was how to get ready. I mean, everything from the resume to what you dress and, and how you even meet people, because what is really, really clear is that before any interview questions even begin, there, there's an interview taking place, right? They're, they are looking at how are you dressed? What does that look like? I ha they even talk to us about how we shake hands and, and make eye contact. All those things were important because before the interview proper and all the questions start, uh, there's absolutely more going on. Now, I, I think that probably this is something similar to pre-flight checks, but since we have so many uh, airmen here, I kind of like, I don't like to go to that world because I don't know much there. I'm guessing it's probably the same, right? Before you get into the air, there's some things that are really important. And so it's like, yeah, you're not in the air, but these other things are, are really important. And here in, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, we have Paul's, basically we could say it as his thanksgiving and prayer. And we're not in kind of the, the proper body of the, the book of Romans yet, but, but Romans has started. And, and these things matter. And much of what Paul writes in, in introductions to, especially to churches, when he writes letters to churches, informs us on the, the nature of the church and, and his heart toward the church, but also that's a reflection of, of God's heart toward the church and the heart that we are to have for the church and God's people. And so what these introductions can do as they give us the nature of those things is they can both help inform us, but I think they can also help give us a, a diagnostic to, to help us question and think about our own disposition and attitude and heart towards the people of God. The, these things can help us question our own lives and think through what's our heart towards God's people, what's our lives and, and our disposition toward those who are called saints. And perhaps you were comforted last week when we learned of, of Paul as he was confronted on the road to Damascus and, and Jesus asked, uh, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's some words of comfort in that, that, that Jesus takes the, the people of God personally. But I hope that there's a sense that that question that he asked to Saul is a bit jarring for us as well. 
that, that it's so personal and so matters the, to Jesus, the, the people of God so matter to him that he would question us on our attitude and disposition and treatment of them, and that should make us question our own attitude and heart toward the church, towards God's people. Because Jesus does take it personally, and so it should be both comfort and it should be a sense jarring us to think through things. It should question us and confront us rightly. And so in verses 8 through 15, we, we have an opportunity, as Paul talks about the kind of the nature of the church with this thanksgiving and with this prayer, we have the opportunity in, in lots of areas to question ourselves. And that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll kind of use this as, as a diagnostic, and we'll ask questions of ourselves as we go through here. And here are the questions, that the areas of questioning that we can have. And I have them all kind of listed the same, so if you're a note taker, hopefully this will be helpful to you. The areas of thanksgiving, praying, longing, strengthening, and intending. Those aren't all perfect, but for the sake of your notes, they all end in I-N-G. So Paul's letter, he, he follows the pattern of the time, right? He gives a greeting. He said that, I'm Paul. I'm writing to you guys who are in Rome. And then he moves to a thanksgiving and a prayer, and he does that here, and he starts this in verse 8. First, I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, what he probably means is the, the world that he would have known at the time, the kind of the known world, but also the world that would have been vast. Like all, all places where there's, there's people of God, the, the news has traveled, right? There's roads connecting Rome to almost everything else, major places around where Paul would have been. And he says, wherever I've been, like your, your faith has been proclaimed there. It's known there. And, and what he does for that when he hears of these things is he offers thanks to God, he says, through Jesus... This is the, the Jesus who he talked about already in verses 3 and 4. The, the one who was descended in the line of David according to the flesh and was declared and appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he thanks God through Jesus because he knows Jesus is this mediator through which he can now pray and thank God for all things, pray to God the Father of all things. He, he knows that, Romans 8, 34, we're, we're going to preview that a lot before we even get there. He knows that this, this Son of God that he speaks about, the one through his prayers go, is the mediator who indeed is interceding. He knows the Son of God is 1 Timothy 2, 5, the, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so he offers thanks to God through Jesus, and he does it because of their faith. Now, thanking God for their faith implies that faith is God's gift, that faith is received, that it's not their own doing, not a result of work so that none of them can boast. And so he doesn't have any reason to say, thank you, Romans, for this. He has a reason to thank God for the faith of these Romans. He, he is acknowledging and implying that God is both the source and sustainer of this faith so he can give thanks to God in the midst of it. He doesn't say to them, hey, you know what? Congrats, you did it. He says, I want to thank God through this Christ for your faith. He, he doesn't say, you made it. No, he says, I want to thank God that there are saints in Rome, that there's faith in, in Rome. And as the roads would have enabled trade and travel, news got out to other Christians where Paul has been, that there are saints in Rome, there are people of faith in Rome. And as he considers these saints in Rome, he, he gives thanks to God. He, he's very explicit with it. He even writes it out, like, I'm thankful to God for your faith. 
And, and he does this a lot. When he writes letters, he, he gives thanks to God. It's not uncommon, but I think what we need to know is that this is also good and right Christian practice. It's as if Paul kind of has in, in his mind. Again, he hasn't been to Rome yet. He has these Roman believers, this church, in his mind as he writes. And he's just kind of picturing them in his mind and saying, thank you, God, for them. He has all those saints gathered, and he's thankful. You know, we get the chance to do the very same thing as we hear of faith around the world, as we know of faithful people, those who have trusted in Jesus around the world, as we know of God's people, we have the, the opportunity to give thanks to God for them because he is the source and sustainer of faith. But we have the opportunity each week when we come in here to look around in corporate worship as, as the saints have gathered together and we get to look around and what we shouldn't do is be like, again, congrats, you made it, but oh my gosh, thank you God for this person that they believe because we know faith only comes from God. And so we have to look around this room, and, and we want to thank God for the faith that's given. That, that faith would be found in Enid is an amazing reality. Right? And so what we need to do as we think about Sunday morning in corporate worship is we don't come in trying to ignore others so that we can worship God or try to block out all others because this is my worship time. We need to keep our eyes open. We'll keep the lights on. Keep your eyes open. Look around. You need to hear things. You need to receive things. You need to then turn all of that into giving thanks to God for the faith that he has given. I mean, consider, again, the magnitude of what God has done in this single room in the middle of Enid. That anybody has faith around us, that we have faith, is just power from God. And we were like, we're looking around, and we're not a huge place, and we're not a huge you know, city on the map, but we look around, and you see the magnitude of God's greatness and power just in this room. And so what do we do for that? We don't look around like, oh, I'm, I'm, I am thankful for you, but I'm thankful to God that he's put faith in your hearts. When we go to the Lord's Supper... A table that's set aside for believers, for those who have trusted in Jesus, for those who have faith. We, we take that meal as a family. It's not an individual meal. It's, it's a family meal. And so when you take the meal, look around. Because what we're saying is that Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out so that ours, our life might be with him forever. So that our sins might be forgiven. We do that as a family. So people that come and take that meal are saying, I'm all in in Christ because of what he's done. Like, I'm, I'm, he's all I have. I, all I am is, is Christ and, and because of Christ. And, and look around when you take that meal because other people are saying that same thing and taking it. What an encouraging thought. You can look up as the line just keeps flowing, person after person saying, Christ is all that I have. Christ is all that I have. Christ is all that I have. That's an encouraging thought, something to thank God for. So church, do you thank God for your own faith if you have it? For the faith of others? For the faith of people in this church? Do you, do you thank God that, that there is a people of faith? That's a diagnostic question for us as we think about Paul's words here. It's, it's good and it's right to thank God for faith that is given. The people of God are, are people to be giving thanks to God for. The gospel, it, it had a foothold in Rome. Amazing thought. And so Paul gives thanks to God for it. But then he moves into moving from thanksgiving to kind of his pray, praying, pray, prayer, his praying. Uh, and that's in verse 9 he starts this. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. 
So Paul is describing, again, what his praying for them has, has looked like. And, and, and I love how Paul, he often does this in the book of Romans, is he, will, he, he digresses just briefly at times, and sometimes he digresses a lot from kind of what he's mainly doing, but each digression is full of this dense material that's really important and matters. Uh, and so he does a little bit of that here. He says, you know, I want to thank God, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without cease. So he's going to talk about the praying that he's doing and the content of it, but he does that by saying, first, God is my witness. Like he's saying, I, he doesn't know them as well uh, personally. They don't know him. So he's kind of establishing, like, trust me, like God, God can testify to the praying that I've given to you. God is his witness, but this is a God who he, what, he serves, which has the connotations of of worship, and he serves this God with his spirit. That is the, the deepest part of him as a person, and so he's kind of opening up a little bit about his personal spiritual life, which is a, a life where it's not just outwardly serving God, but inwardly at the deepest person. He's saying, I, I'm serving God, I'm worshiping God. In that place, he's serving God, and he, and he serves him in the gospel of his son. And those words don't jump off the page to us, but when we hear Paul say that this son, when he uses that word and he's thinking about the son of God, here's likely what would have come to mind. Like, remember, this is God's gospel, and now he says it's the gospel of his son. You know, verse 1 says, I'm, I'm writing to you of, of God's gospel, the gospel of God, and here he says it's the gospel of his son. He, he's picking up the idea of verse 3, that, that God's gospel is a gospel concerning, centered on, focused on the son of God. And this is the son that, again, when Paul uses that word, here's kind of the things he has in mind because he writes them down. In chapter 5, verse 10, it's through the death of the son, that even while we were enemies through that death of that son, we are reconciled to God. So this is the son, the one whose death reconciles us to God. It's through the son that the reconciling work of the gospel occurs. Or in chapter 8, Verse 3, it's the Son who was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And so in his flesh, this one, he comes and he's an atonement for our sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. And so it's the Son who is sent as an atonement for sin in chapter 8, verse 3. In chapter 8, verse 29, as a result of the Son's death, he says, now we're all being conformed into the image of what? The image of the Son. It's a specific image. This is the image of the Son. In chapter 8, verse 32, it's because the Son wasn't spared that those who are in the Son, those who are Christ, are assured that God is going to surely give them all that's needed for their life and death. And so when we talk about the gospel of the Son, the, these are the categories Paul has in mind when he thinks about the Son. Right? He, he serves no small gospel, and it's because this is no small son. This is the preeminent son. This is the great son, the son of God. And it's this gospel about this son that Paul just keeps bringing up. I and mean, we're, we're nine verses in, and he just keeps bringing it up. And it's a theme of the entire book of Romans, and he just can't, he can't keep from bringing it up. He himself doesn't seem to be able to get over it personally. He just keeps coming, and he is the one who is set aside to serve this gospel, the gospel of the Son. And in service to this gospel, Paul prays for them. Here's what he prays. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. So when Paul prays, I think he's saying, when I, when I pray, you guys are a part of those prayers. I don't think he means he, he never, like he's always praying 24-7. I don't think that's the, the 
point of what he's saying. He's saying just every time I pray, I'm, I'm praying for you believers, saints that are in Rome. You're constantly a part of my prayers. So the people of God are, are people that, that can kind of do that. They, they pray. There's a sense that they pray, and they pray for others who care about God. And so, again, here's kind of the question from Paul's praying. Do, do we pray for God's people? Do, are we praying for, for one another? Are we praying for those who have faith? The people of God are, are people that pray. And they should be praying without ceasing. That is, they should be praying constantly in their lives. And they should be lifting up at least part of that. The content of those prayers should be for God's people, for one another. Paul is going to call them to prayer like this. In chapter 12, verse 12, he's going to say, be constant in prayer. Be, be constant in it. In, in chapter 15, verse 13, he's going to say, strive with me in prayer for God's people. Are not just uh, a people that are just to be left on their own, but God's people take ownership for one another and they pray to God for one another. And so praying for God's people, apparently, as he calls them to pray, is not just an apostle thing. That's a Christian thing. So Christian, do you pray for God's people? Do you pray for this church? Do you pray for God's people afar? Paul hasn't visited Rome, doesn't know these people personally, and yet he prays constantly for them. And again, he doesn't hide the, the content of his intercession. So we have thanksgiving, praying, and now we move to his longing. I'm, I'm, without ceasing, I'm mentioning you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may, may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He longs to see them. And so in a time when he wasn't able to physically go to them, he wants them to know, like, it's not because of lack of desire. I, I long to be with you. I, I want to be there. He longs to see them, he says. And again, there's some implications of this. This That he longs to see them, he's implying that he thinks it's better that he actually be with them, that he see them. This is the same theme that we see in other places of the scripture. And John, the apostle John, in 2 John verse 12, he says, I have lots of things to, to write to you, but, but I'd rather do, do it face to face. I'd rather come and see you. He, he, again, he's implying there's, there's some things that we could say, but there's no substitute from, from actually being together. And I think Paul is picking up that same idea here. He's I long to see you. Like, yeah, we could write some of these things down, but there's really no substitute for actually being with you and seeing you. I think what this does is this reflects a God who has been working to obtain a people to dwell with. God wants to dwell among a people. He be their God. They be his people. He doesn't want a people that he's going to rule from afar. That's not what God is working for. He wants to be in the midst of his people. They knowing him as God. He knowing him as his own people. And here's what's happened. Sin has disrupted this. But God was so intent on it that he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He, he pursued us. He, he came closer to us. And because he descended in the flesh in the line of David and rose again... One day we know that that reality that God has been working for is going to be accomplished. In, in Revelation 21, we get this vision of the end. And, and what's happening? God is dwelling in the midst of his people. He's going to dwell with them, and they're going to be his people, and God himself will be their God. He's dwelling with them. That's the ultimate reality. That's where we're moving if we're in Christ. We're moving to that place where we're dwelling together. He's not ruling from afar. He's right in the middle of his people. They're recognizing him as God. He's recognizing them as his people. And the nearest resemblance to that on earth 
corporate worship right here this morning. It's a foretaste of that day. Right? This is as close to heaven as we're going to get here on this earth. Right? One of the top Christian songs in terms of most played, most popular Christian songs in history is the song, I Can Only Imagine. And it captures, I think, in a sense, in the lyrics, what they're trying to capture, I think, is just the wonder of that day. What, what would that be like? Like when, when we finally get to that day. But, but I think I want to say that the Bible fills our imagination. That the Bible gives us a picture of that day. It says what it's going to look like and be like. It, it can fill our imagination. So we can say, I can only imagine. It's not wrong to, to kind of meditate on like, what would that be like? But, but we also need to let the, the Bible inform that imagination. And, and here's what, it's okay to sing that song and think through it, meditate on it. But that song is full of a word that I don't like right now. I. It's everywhere. I. I. What will it be like when I, 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 I? Like we need more we's. Like we, we need... We need more thousand tongues. The song is full of eyes, and heaven is full of a multitude. You can't even count them. And you know what's good about it is that you'll still be I, right? But you'll be I in the midst of this multitude, this we. It's going to be God's people together in worship. Which is why an actual gathering of God's people on earth for worship is the suburbs of heaven. As close as we're going to get. It's a closer foretaste than I can only imagine, right? And if we, if we long for that day, we're going to long for Sunday. Amen. It's why in a post-COVID world, or maybe we're still in it, I don't really know. It's why in a post-pandemic, whatever world we're in, it's why virtual church, online church, whatever you want to call it, is never going to substitute and never going to satisfy because you're not actually with anyone. So if you think maybe the virtual church is enough, maybe online church is enough, just ask you, would virtual heaven be enough? Would online heaven work? <laughs> Got a strong no from that. I hope so, right? <laughs> of course not. I, I read this this week from one pastor. He said a virtual church is about as useful as a virtual spouse or a virtual family or a virtual body. Like No one would settle for that right? Not useful. We need to be with people because that's a foretaste of what's going to happen and we get to live that here on this earth. What an amazing thought. But what an amazing reality that God has accomplished, that he has won his people here and now to get together and worship him as a preview, foretaste of what one day will be there forever. Amen. So church, do you long to be with God's people? Do you actually long to see one another? To look around the room? These people, like they have faith and I want to be with them. Because you know what? That's what heaven is going to be like. If you don't want to be with other people, I'm not sure how you're going to like heaven. We're going to see people. John in, in the book of Revelation sees actual faces. He can't count them all, but he sees them. And he, he says, like this is the description of heaven. That they're going to be together worshiping God. And so do you long to be with God's people and see God's people? That's what Paul says. Like, he longs to visit these saints in Rome. He wants to actually see them. Now, he can write to them, but he wants to see them. He wants to be with them. Paul knows like, substantial ministry can take place by his apostolic writing. He knows that. And he still longs to be with them. 
He wants to be there. And here's why. He, he says why in verse 11. He says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He longs to be there, but he longs to be there not to take in the sights of Rome, not to, not to observe the spectacle of, of what the, the world is like in, in Rome. He longs to be there for them, to, to serve them, to, to strengthen the saints that are there in Rome. That's why he wants to be there. I'm sure Rome had all sorts of attractions, and Paul doesn't mention any of them. Like, I mean, I'd love to see some of the things that you guys see every day. Or, man, like, the breakfast in this place where I'm at is a little bit weak, but I'm sure you guys in Rome, like, you guys have everything. Like, surely we're going to get some good breakfast there. And he's, no, I long to, to be there, to, to strengthen you, to serve you. So he doesn't view this people, this church, these saints, as a commodity to be consumed, and not just thinking, like, what can I get from them? Although... That is coming. But he also wants to see them as a people that need to be strengthened. They're, they're people that he can serve. And I think that's how we're to approach relationships. Not thinking, first, how can I receive from this person, but how can I give? Now, one author says, we, we are not to enter into relationships like a consumer. And so we need to ask ourselves, especially about our Christian brothers and sisters, not are these cool people, which we know the answer to that already, we're cool. Are these nice people? I'm just kidding. We're not, I don't know if we're cool or not. Nice people, people whom I want to be around. And aren't those some of the questions that we ask? But how can I serve? How can I help them grow? How can I make them into better people? Do we come with those kind of questions to one another? Do we approach them not as consumers, but as those who can give? As those who seek to, like, how can I, how can I serve them? Are, are these the people that need to be served? Because that's what I want to do. I want to serve them. And how does Paul seek to strengthen them? He, he says, I long to, to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Here's how you can strengthen them. Here's what Paul says you Spiritual gift. I love this. Think about Paul the Apostle. He is stating that he wants to come and be with them. And here's his reliance upon actually doing any good there I want to give you a spiritual gift. He is stating, he's declaring his reliance on the Holy Spirit to strengthen these saints. The Apostle Paul is doing that. I, I want to impart to you a spiritual gift to, to serve and strengthen the people of God. Paul looks not to what he brings to the table in and of himself. He looks to the, to the Spirit in order to give them something. So what gift does he want to give them? What spiritual gift does he want to bring to them? Well, he, he doesn't say, but here's what we know of Paul's theology, right? He, he knows that all gifts, no matter what the gift is from the Spirit, they're all working for the same purpose. They're all working to strengthen. They're all working to build up the, the body of Christ. And so they're all working in that same direction. So in one sense, he doesn't really need to say what spiritual gift, because all of them are working for that same reality, to build up the church of Christ. Right? But, but probably, he, he's probably thinking of his own gifts in some ways. Right? He's, he's gifted in maybe exhortation or teaching or, or knowledge. And likely some of that is filling in the content. Like maybe I can bring something that I have, something that God has gifted to me. Maybe I can offer that and, and be of a strength to these people. But maybe it's a lot like, and I think it probably is, a lot like what he writes in the book of Romans. Like, here's how I can strengthen them. Let's look at the gospel of God, the one that's concerning his son, the, the one that, that we could never be done with. There's so many deeps here. We could keep going. Likely it looks a lot like what he writes in this letter. What we know about Paul is that he loves to work for the church's maturity through, through gospel-centered, gospel-saturated exhortation and encouragement. 
And so he, he tells the, the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, 28, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, what purpose, Paul, that we might present everyone mature in Christ? He loves to work for maturity in Christ among God's people. And so he may not know what all their weak points are and where they need to be strengthened, but he then, that's why he says, I, I long to impart some, some spiritual gift. Whatever, whatever I can do to serve and strengthen you, that's what he wants to do. I, I want to present them mature in Christ. But then he clarifies in verse 12. He says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And again, I know this is just a thanksgiving and a prayer, but that is a stunning statement to me. Right? So Paul has already said, I, I long to strengthen you. How, how am I going to do that? By a spiritual gift. Like I'm, I'm relying upon the Spirit for that to happen. And then he declares that he's going to receive from them as well. That the gain for them as he goes to impart some spiritual gift to them is not just one way. Like he's, he's speaking of mutual gain here. In other words, he is declaring before them his own is insufficiency. Not that I have everything, not that I have all strength, but I actually need you. I want to gain from you and be strengthened by you as well. He, he's not under the illusion that he's self-sufficient. He's not too proud to receive from these Roman believers. That's Paul the Apostle, who'd been caught up in the third heaven, and he can't even describe it. That Apostle, the one who met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, is saying, I would love to receive from you. We don't even know if this church has been touched by an apostle yet. Like, they might just be believers that just, again, the gospel went out from Pentecost, and maybe that was their touch with the, with the apostles, and then they're there, and they're trusting in Christ there. We, we don't know what influence they have or don't have. We can only kind of guess. And yet Paul says, you have faith. I hear about it. And, and so I want to come, and I need a gain from you as well. I want mutual gain to happen. Paul recognizes what we all must recognize, that we're not omniscient. In other words, we don't have all strength. We need to be strengthened. We have weaknesses. And God set up this mutual ministry among his people in the church to meet those needs in one another. That's how God set it up. And the primary way that God strengthens his people is not through your, you know, kind of your solo retreat. It's not through private meditation. One of the primary ways that God strengthens his people is through mutual ministry, a giving and receiving from other believers. And God himself equips his people to do this. He equips us with spiritual gifts to strengthen one another. God gifts each of his children with these spiritual gifts in order that they might be used in one another's life to build us up in Christ's likeness, to strengthen us, to bring us to more maturity in Christ Jesus. And so the question then, again, diagnosing our own lives, are you using yours? Are you using whatever God has imparted to you to impart some benefit and strength to another? Perhaps you're unsure about what your spiritual gifts, gift or gifts are or is or what that looks like in your life. And, and I don't think that I need to give you an exact and precise answer. I think we can start where Paul does. Where he says, I just long to be with you. That's a good start. And I long to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Like, start with that attitude that says, I just want to come and I want to serve. How, how can I strengthen you? How can I meet some needs that you have? Like, how can I help? Just start there. And, and see what God does with that. And let him continue to lead and guide 
But we can take heart because God is going to use us. He's going to use you through spiritual gifts to strengthen and build up others in the body of Christ. That's why he has given them to you. He, he says that each of us like we we have these gifts and they're all given for one purpose for the building up. And each of you then needs to use his gifts in the proportion that God has given for the building up of the body. And then we need to think of the flip side of that, though. The, the flip side of that, then, is, is that we also have to receive. Paul talks about mutual benefit here. He, he wants to impart some spiritual gift, but he also wants to be mutual. He wants to be strengthened by their faith as well. He wants to receive as well. He knows he needs to receive. So, so none is God's lone and sufficient gift to the church. Where you are the one that now can impart your gifts and that's all you need to do. Like, if we see some ministry of the church as something that, that we don't need to ourselves sit under, then, then we're missing what God has done and what he is uh, organizing in the body of Christ. That, that none of us is God's gift to the church. We are our a gift, maybe, that God is using for the sake of building up the body. And we also then need to receive. We only function as one part. We're not all parts of the body. And so we need to receive. That includes Paul, apparently, which is stunning again. So do you recognize your need for others? Do you recognize your own need to be strengthened? And then are you, in light of that, are you putting yourself in a position to then receive from others? Are, are you in the right context to, to receive? To be in that position where you can receive strength and receive encouragement from others it's going to take proximity. You're going to have to be near to one another. You have to be close to other believers. It's going to take some time. You're going to have to be consistent so that you can receive what you need to receive, see what you need to see, hear what you need to hear, and it's for sure going to take humility. Uh, one theologian says this, so helpful and difficult to hear but right. For there is no one so void of gifts in the church of Christ who is not able to contribute something to our benefit. But we are hindered by our envy and by our pride from gathering such fruit from one another. Such is our high-mindedness, such is the inebriety produced by vain reputation that despising and disregarding others, everyone thinks that he possesses what is abundantly sufficient for himself. Let's, let's just commit to cast down being hindered by those things. Let's commit to cast down this envious attitude, this prideful attitude that thinks that I can't gather fruit from others around me. Let's get rid of this high-mindedness that, that thinks that I, I'm not in need of receiving. Like, let's not be better than Paul. And let's not miss out on the strength that God offers to us and to our lives as Christians through others. That he intends to get to us. Don't miss out on that by envy or pride or vanity, high-mindedness. Put yourself in a position to receive from others. Be strengthened by others. But notice what Paul expects to strengthen him, to encourage him, to be of mutual benefit. He says, one another's faith. In one sense, faith itself is a special gift, right? God acts upon spiritually dead sinners and makes dead things alive, right? That is, that is an amazing, special gift. But, but when Paul is, is speaking here, he's not talking about some secret, special, like, we need the secret service gifts from some of you at Rome to, to inform me. Like, that's not what he's doing. I, I want to be strengthened and encouraged by your faith. 
just the gift of faith, which again is, is not unspecial, but he's just speaking of ordinary faith. Just this the faith of believers. It may not be flashy. It may not even be particularly mature. Like he's going to come to strengthen them because they're lacking too. Like it may not even be that strong. But that's not the requirement for him to be strengthened. It's not the requirement he places upon them to be encouraged by them. He says, I want to be strengthened and encouraged by your faith. And we're going to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Like, Paul, aren't you way further along than them? Aren't you, in your faith, more mature, stronger than theirs? So you, do you really need to be mutually encouraged? Like, Paul says, yeah. I want to be mutually encouraged by your faith. He, he, he thinks ordinary faith is enough. And if ordinary faith, if we can call faith ordinary, from ordinary believers is enough to encourage Paul, strengthen Paul, Surely, ordinary faith from ordinary believers is enough to strengthen and encourage us too. Faith in everyday life from ordinary believers can be an incredible source of strength and encouragement. So we're all sojourners here. You want to have some strength and encouragement for the road? The, The sojourn that we're on? The path that we're on because we haven't arrived and it's a hard road. We're exiles in this land. We're we're moving towards our home, but we're not there yet. You want some strength for the road? Just look around. Who's traveling the road faithfully along with you? And and receive some encouragement from that. Be strengthened by that. So again, the question is this. So are we living out our faith in a way that is noticeable enough by others that it could encourage them? And are we living it out with others so that they could see ours and we see theirs? So we're living out our faith together. That's what Paul, I think, envisions here. Mutual ministry, mutual encouragement of one another's faith. The assumption is, from Paul, is that that's what God's people do. They live this out together. They're mutually encouraged, mutually strengthened by one another's faith. Paul will be able to see their faith. That's what he's saying. I long to come see you. And and when I come there, I'm going to see your faith. And then when I come there in just normal, everyday ways, like, you're going to see mine. And we're going to be encouraged by those things. But if Paul could strengthen them and be encouraged them, encouraged by them, why hasn't he already visited them? Because that's where we move from, okay, so we're, we're, we're moving along here. We've gone longing, strengthening, and now we're into intending. What, what, what are you intending when you come? And, and why haven't you already come? What, what was your intent in that? And he lets us in briefly. Verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Verse 11, he said he wanted to come, but only by God's will. Here he says, I I intended, but prevented. By by what? He doesn't give us a direct answer, but but we can just, if we look at the the brief reading of the book of Acts, we can see, like, Paul's been prevented by, by faithful ministry among the Gentiles everywhere he's gone. Like, he is... A busy man. He had much that was in front of him, like the care of the church, the planting of church, evangelization of, of those who have never heard the name of Christ. Like he is everywhere going about that business. And, and he is often like, and he, he is busy with that. He's not just taking vacations on the beach at this time to where he says, like, I, I've got a spare week to, to head up to Rome. Like he, he wants to be there. But he's like, I'm, I'm busy with the, the ministry that God has put in front of me right now. And I need to be faithful to that. And so like in a sense, he's, he's prevented by that faith ministry. Perhaps we can see something of the goodwill of God in that, or the good design of God in that, and that while he can't go and see them, he writes this letter that we now get to receive. So maybe God has some really good intentions, we're sure that he did, goodwill in preventing Paul from seeing them up to this point. But he opens up more about why he intended to come to them. 
says, I, I longed for this. And I want you to be unaware that I longed for this. And I've intended to come to you and been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I think that helps inform us why he's been prevented. Like, he's under obligation. And, and the obligation is to people without distinction. He, he's not trying to say, like, here's the categories. Like, no, he's saying that, that, that includes everybody without distinction. That's my obligation. I'm ob obligation to go to them. I, I need to take the gospel to them. He is, in a sense, indebted. Not in the way that, that he has borrowed money and now needs to pay it back. That's the wrong sense of indebtedness that he's talking about. The wrong sense of obligation. It's, it's kind of the opposite. He has been given a huge sum and now is, has the responsibility of taking it to others. That's the obligation and indebtedness that Paul feels. He has been given it to deliver it to others. He, he's received good news and, and he, it's so good that he feels like he, he has to get it out. This is what he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, that necessity is laid upon me. That's what he's getting at. This obligation he's talking about, necessity is laid on me. Well, if I do not preach the gospel, he's been given this gospel, the gospel of God concerning his son. And he says, I have to get this out to all people without distinctions. Everywhere that I can go, I need that. Necessity is laid upon me for that purpose. But he wants to come to them. And he wants to reap some harvest among them. But again, what does Paul mean here? Hey, he's already said, who's he addressing in this letter? Saints. I'm talking to you saints who are in Rome. He's addressing the people of God. And so what does he mean when he says harvest? Because normally when we think of harvest, we think of new believers, conversion. We think of evangelism and new believers. So, so what harvest is Paul speaking of here? Because he's already identified them as saints. Well, certainly there are many in Rome that he could think of that, that aren't in these, this church, aren't part of this group of saints. And so maybe he has them in mind when he thinks, I, I want to come to you and we're going to work together for this gospel and we're going to spread it as far and wide in that place that you're in as well. Like we're going to work together for that purpose. Maybe he has that in mind. Certainly he probably wants to do that. But, but I think that Paul's harvest, we also have to include within that what we saw earlier and that what he wants and what he works for in the church is the maturing of believers, the maturing of faith. So as an apostle to the Gentiles, Paul aims at both evangelizing those who have never heard and strengthening believers that have heard. And that fits well with what he says in verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, saints, who are in Rome. He, he wants to preach the gospel to these saints in Rome. The, preaching the gospel then will stir them up for the right kind of love and good works that they've been made for. And so he wants to preach the gospel to them. And he also knows that saints are still in need of the gospel. Because it's as if, it's the reality that the early church boasted of this, they would say that the gospel is simple enough for lambs to wade in and deep enough for elephants to swim. Paul knows that to be true for these Christians too. He, he wants to bring the gospel to them to, to fuel them, to continue to form them into the image of the Son. And he says, like, man, the gospel is enough that we can push it out to the wise and the foolish, and, and they can come and understand it, and they can wade in it. But if you are an elephant and you need to swim a little bit deeper in order to get all soaked in this gospel, like, well, it's enough for that too. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in room. Do we see our need for continuing gospel ministry? Do we see our own need like this as, as we need the continuing 
continual preaching of the gospel to the saints that are here? Like, do we, do we know that as part of our need in this life? Do we know that that is the thing that God uses? Like, we don't move on from the gospel. It continues to form us and fuel us forward as gospel people. Paul intends for them to continue on in gospel ministry. And he intends to bring more gospel ministry as he comes to them. Are we a people intending to both receive that gospel ministry and, and to work for that gospel ministry in others? We don't need to say like, hey, you understand the gospel. Now we're going to move on to bigger and better things and work for that with one another. We, we are going to try to work in deeper things, but also those deeper things are gospel-centered things. And if those deeper things aren't gospel-centered things, then they're not really deeper things that we need to wade into. Are we people that both intend to receive ministry of the gospel and to work for that gospel ministry in others? And so Paul concludes the thanksgiving and prayer, and, and he expresses his attitude, his disposition, his heart towards God's people. I think giving us some questions, hopefully along the way, in, in terms of, of his thanksgiving and praying and longing and strengthening and intending that helps us and challenges our own like view and disposition and heart toward the church. It helps give us this, this diagnosis of, of where, we're at, where we're at in our disposition to the people. And perhaps that diagnosis shows that, that we need to do work and that we need to receive work and that we need work done on us. Perhaps it has shown us that there are areas where you need to repent, we need to, to ask for God's forgiveness, or we need to move towards other people in this kind of ministry that Paul speaks about that goes on among God's people. But here's what we also need to receive from this thanksgiving and prayer that God gives. It shouldn't just be a challenge to us, it should be that, but it also should be an encouragement. Because here's what's going on. If this is Paul's heart, servant of Christ, apostle, set aside for the gospel of God, what, what his heart is, is, is a reflection in this letter of Christ's own heart. Christ is the one who is, is working for these things. His heart is displayed in this. He, he is thanking, right? He is the one who is giving thanksgiving to the Father. Like, like, man, I went to redeem a people, and there they are. Like, look at that. That, that he is this one who rejoices over us with singing, Right? That's the, the Christ that we should know. This is the one who, who prays for us without ceasing. He's interceding on our behalf to the Father. And, and you know what? Like He's close enough to make sure that what he's interceding for is going to get done. Like that's, that's a good praying that he's doing. Like he is the one who's working for our strengthening in, in this life. That He knows that we have weaknesses, but we can know that because of his strength, in our weaknesses, we can be strong because his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. He is the one who is coming to, to not just to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He wanted to strengthen this people. He is the one who is intending gospel ministry for us. He, he wants us to continue to know and love the depths of all that he has done for us so that we might see his heart rightly. And guess what he also intends? He intends that that gospel ministry one day, in a sense, will come to an end. Because he also wants to reap a harvest among us harvest that's going to be a final harvest. That when he comes, it's not going to be to strengthen us, but he is going to secure us to be his own and with him forever. The intending of Christ is to come and reap that final and full harvest where we can know that my salvation is full and final and that he is my savior forevermore. If we trust in that savior, here's what we do. We remember that 
We, we look forward to it in taking the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that declares the Lord's death until he returns, knowing that he intends to return and that that harvest is coming. And then if we're in him, we're going to be a part of that harvest in, in the positive direction where we will receive our final and full salvation and be with him forever. That's you. If you're trusting in that, if you're fully in with Jesus, if you're saying that Jesus is my life, that guy, I, I don't have anything else to, to proclaim before God to, to be able to be a part of that harvest other than Christ, then this meal's for you. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so that your sins might be forgiven, that you might know the Father, not just now, but forever. If that's not you, we want to say, don't, don't take this meal with us. Instead, we want you to take Jesus. We want you to repent of your sins and believe in Christ. And if you don't know what that looks like, find another believer. Come talk to us. We'd love to share what we believe about Jesus. We want to share with you the good news of the gospel of God. But don't take this meal. But if you're a believer, like, open your eyes during this meal, right? Receive receive some of the mutual ministry that this meal is proclaiming. It's meant to proclaim something not just to you individually, but to us. These are the people that are in. These are the people that Christ has died for. These are the people that Christ is coming back for. Look at that and be encouraged, be strengthened by their faith as they come and get the bread and the juice. Let's pray together. God, we have needs. We are needy people, and one of our greatest needs is to know how much we need you. And this meal reminds us of our greatest need, to have our sin and our guilt and our shame and our damnation removed from our hearts and heads and replaced with forgiveness and your presence and joy and hope for a future. And so we want to rejoice in the way you've provided for our needs through your death and resurrection that we proclaim as we take this meal. But God, you've also revealed to us today our great need for one another and the deep ways that you meet our needs through the ministry of the body of Christ. And so, uh, so, so many things uh, to repent of and to receive correction from your word today, but we embrace it gladly because we know we have a heavenly father who will not stop working on us until we look like your son, Jesus. And so we hear today that we need to be more thankful than we are and more prayerful than we are and that we need to keep our eyes on one another and lay down our lives in ministry more than we are. And this conviction is a good thing, Lord, because you are the strength and you are the power available to meet these needs and to continue to change us. And so as we rejoice in your death and resurrection, God, I pray that we would also rejoice in the continual work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to continue to drive us forward and cast off the old sinful man and put on the new man every day. We want to do that. So help us to love you. Help us to love one another. 
and obey your word today. In your name I pray, amen.